0: Verse 1 of chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house and bought with his money, Every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would show up and that you would help us. Your word will always be a mystery. It will always be something that we do not understand unless you show up, unless you help us, unless you guide us through your text. And so that's exactly what we pray for, God. Would you come and would you help us? Would you guide us through your word? Would you do surgery on our sinful hearts by your word, by your spirit today? Please help us, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, When my adult life began, and I had to start making some big boy decisions, uh, life changed a lot for me. Here's just some things that I had to change. I I made a list. No more shorts that hid uh, mid-calf, per Leah's request. Um, No more wearing all of the same color to match, like my shirt, shorts, and shoes heard Leah's request again. <clears throat> um, no more diamond stud earrings uh, or G-unit hats. Um, I use a salad fork now. I still can't tell you which one it is. I just use all my forks. Um, I cut my steak with a knife instead of just biting into it, like grabbing it with the fork and taking a bite. Um, I clean the toilet. <laughs> There's nothing more humbling than that job. Um, I don't keep cookie dough on my bedside table anymore. Like that, apparently that's frowned upon. Um, I sleep under the covers now. I used to sleep on top of the comforter and use a blanket so that when I would wake up, I'd just throw the blanket off my bed's made. <coughs> um, I look at the tags on clothes to see whether or not, you know, you're supposed to wash them with hot water or cold water or dry them in the washer, in the washer, dry them in the dryer or hang dry them. Or if you should just throw it away cause it's too complicated. <coughs> um, nobody mows the lawn anymore or fixes stuff around the house like that. <laughs> That's up to me now. Uh, Poor Leah. Um, Raymond noodles aren't a meal. Or ramen noodles. I don't know how you guys say it. Um, And not only all of this stuff, like, I've had to change a lot of things because my body has just started to turn on me. Um, Like, gluten and dairy, not my friends. Like, they do not like me. Um, And I need to sleep my full seven to eight hours, but I can't sleep any longer than that or my back hurts. Like, (laughs) what is that? Um, And then now when I run, like, I feel like I'm in a dream, like, you know, like I can't really run that fast. (laughs) I feel like I should be going faster, but I'm just not really getting going. Um, And the list could go on, but what I have learned is that I have to live in a certain way in order to live and function properly. Our fight of faith means that we must live in a certain way. It is what verse one describes as a blameless walk before God, because what God knows that Abram doesn't know up to this point, is that God doesn't deal well with sinners. God is perfection in its most absolute form, and so anything that is short of that, God cannot be a part of it. God cannot be around sin. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says it this way, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear Essentially, what verse 1 tells us right off the bat is that God will bless Abram, but there is a sense in which Abram has to show up. He has to bring something to the table. God says in verse 1, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless so that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply, multiply you greatly. What is up to this point in Genesis been all about God's work in Abram's life now becomes about Abram's part to play. And it sounds completely and totally impossible. Walk before God and be blameless. Anybody want to try that out? And literally the word for blameless here is translated elsewhere as perfect. So in Matthew 5, verse 48, same word. You therefore must be perfect, blameless, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Same thing as God is saying here to Abram. I can only make a covenant with with a blameless person. So you do that, I'll do my end, and you'll be greatly rewarded. All right, cool. Let's go home and cry. Like, this is impossible. None of us can boast blamelessness or perfection for a second. So, what in the world are we supposed to do? The answer, in short, is to, um, to respond to God's call in faith. But God has given us Genesis 17 for this question to answer it more specifically. Because what we'll see is that faith is essentially broken down into four stages. The first is God sets the stakes. The second is we doubt. The third is God reassures. And the fourth is we respond. God sets the stakes. We doubt. God reassures. And we respond. Faith is that God calls us to walk blamelessly before Him. And by doing so, He sets the stakes impossibly high so as to make us rely fully and completely on him. But because of that impossibility, we doubt that the blessing is going to come. We laugh in God's face when he calls us to walk blameless, but nevertheless, God reassures us. God reminds us of, of just who it is who made the promise to bless and who is actually going to do the work. He makes the impossible possible. And lastly, we respond to God's impossible call by answering it in faith. We walk blameless by the grace of God alone. So let's just take a look at the first one. God sets the, stake, sets the stakes. Uh, take a look at verse one. When Abram was 99 years old, and now let's just pause there to get some context. Uh, faith has meant a whole lot for Abram up to this point. From the first call at age 75 from a God who he did not know, um, where God said in verse three, I will make, of, J- of chapter 12, And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Abram listened and he went out into the wilderness to a land that God did not give to him yet. And there he experiences his first battle with suffering in the form of a severe famine. So Abram He's frustrated by that. He sins. He goes down to Egypt, out of God's will to Egypt, um, where he sins some more, only to see God miraculously send him and his whole family out of Egypt without a scratch, with actually more riches than they came there with. Um, Then Abram and his nephew Lot, they get into it because, you know, they both left Egypt Egypt rich, and they had more people, and they just keep growing, and they keep multiplying, Um, and so they just become these big things that the nations that are surrounded, they're like, you know what? These little tent-dwelling people are getting a little big, so uh, Lot he just leaves. He's like, "All right, I'm going to take this land. Abram, you go your own way. We'll do that." So after that, Abram goes back to the land where he first experienced this faith, and he worships God. Then it turns out that Abram found out that Lot got captured, and so he had to go and rescue his nephew. Um, and he, like he literally goes to war with nation after nation to go and rescue his nephew. And God shows up in every battle, and he wins. So he grabs Lot, he leaves, and he's left, just having destroyed these barbaric nations, kind of nervous, like, like we all would be. It just, you, know, like you beat a guy up, he's probably coming back with his friends. So, um, and then, so he's scared, and he doubts, and then God says, fear not, I am your shield. So Abram believes, then he doubts again, and God shows up as a smoking pot. And a flaming torch to make a one-sided covenant with Abram to essentially show Abram that the promise of Genesis 12 will most absolutely come to be. And he says, I promise if I promise to die if I do not uphold my end of this covenant. I even promise to die if you don't. And after all of this, ten years after that very first call, Sarai, Abram's wife is just fed up with this whole waiting thing. And so she tries to self self-effort her way into the promise, into the blessing. <clears throat> And so she, she gives Abram her servant to have a baby with and none of that goes well because they can't wait on God. Uh, but God shows up and he picks up the pieces of the sin of, of this whole mess. Um, and now we are here, 25 years after the first call. Pressure has to be mounting for sure, like in this family. And so like it already looks like an impossible task, you know, like at 75 having a baby, but now it's 190 <clears throat> And this is where we pick it up in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. He tells him, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. I am well able to perform what I have promised, even against the most insurmountable odds. The context of the covenant is already laying stress on God's power, not human helplessness. Then he keeps going. He says, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God calls Abram to walk as in an ongoing journey, like a, a pilgrimage of, of life, but it's a pilgrimage of perfection. And then in verse three, then Abram fell on his face. Abram has nothing to say in the presence of God. And he just falls on his face in, the, in fear and awe of the God of the universe like men are killed by this very presence, and even the Israelites later, like they tell Moses in the desert, they're like, you talk to us, don't let him talk to us, because we'll surely die. Um, and even God says, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And God said to him, continuing in verse three, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude. Of nations, God is just bringing Abram back to the same call as 25 years ago, just reminding him of what is to come. But yet again, it gives him a newer look at this promise. In verse five, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you past tense the father of a multitude of nations. He gives Abram a new name. So what this does is it makes Abram a new man. His new name reflects his new status. In, God's, in a relationship with God. <clears throat> and same with Sarai in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. God calls us what he sees us. And then in verse six. God just sets up his side of the covenant and notice how many times like God emphasizes who does the work in verse six, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So he's just filling out more details of the covenant. Like he's just brightening up this promise that he's already made to Abraham now. Um, And this is all what Abraham already knows. Like he gets that. <clears throat> and then he steps in with Abraham's side of the covenant in verse 1, where he says, walk blameless before me. And so verse 9 is actually to answer, well, all right, how, how am I supposed to do that? <clears throat> verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, Abraham, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So how? How are Abraham and his people to walk before God in a blameless manner? They're to partake in a sign of God's covenant. Circumcision was a sign of God's grace to humankind. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant. It signified what God was saying with his covenant in terms of promises to each one who is circumcised. The closest Christian parallel that we have to this uh, Jewish custom is baptism. Uh, It's merely an external sign, an external sign of what God has done in us. It is a sign of the covenant that has saved us. Just like being baptized doesn't save us, circumcision did not save Abraham. It was merely a sign that God had already saved him. So what exactly does this mean? God says, you must walk your life of faith as blameless before me. Any natural response would be, well, how in the world do I do that? And this is where God says, be circumcised. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us because we don't operate this way anymore. Um, because like Galatians 5 actually says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working for through love, And Paul had to write this because the Jews were taking it way too far by saying that you had to do this in order to be saved. But from the mouth of God himself, it is merely a sign. When it comes down to it, circumcision no longer matters for you and I. We are free to choose either way. What matters is, just like the verse said, our faith working through love. So how can you and I walk blamelessly before God? We have a circumcision of our heart via Romans 2 that cuts away at the dross and the ugly and gives way to new flesh that that grows our ability to love. We love those around us. We love those far from us. We love those that it's really hard to love. Those who hate us, we love. That's how we walk blamelessly before God. In in this day it was circumcision of the flesh flesh. Today it is circumcision of the heart. It's love. Now, we should feel like a, a sigh of relief, but then also an unsettledness because we don't have to do that, but we're not very good at love. Like maybe we're playing back in our minds like, oh, I didn't do that well this week or or this morning or right now. Or maybe I, like we even have a thought, you know what, <laughs> I'm not going to love that guy later or that person later. <clears throat> um, but God has set the stakes of the covenant between him and us, and it is impossible. Love? I can, I can do that sometimes well, when I want to, on a good day, when I feel like it. But all the time? My walk being of love? That's impossible. But this is exactly God's design. Jesus, he had just gotten done teaching. When a man walks up to him, he's just a very wealthy man. He's got a lot of possessions. He's he's very rich. And he comes up to him and says, Teacher, uh, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, well, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Okay, sure, bro. He says, "All, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus says to him, if you would be, and notice the the word, perfect. If you would be blameless, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions, And so Jesus, at that moment, he just turns to his disciples. That guy is already gone. And he says, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, just like we should feel, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? by, By your standards, Jesus, none of us make it. Who can be saved? Who can do this? And then in the very next verse, but Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. God sets the stakes of this blessing impossibly high so that we will depend wholly on Him and so that He will get even more glory from the story. There's no way that a mere mortal can walk blameless before the God of the universe who is perfect in every way. That's impossible unless God shows up. Unless, there is a, unless that, that mere mortal is with God, it will not happen. This is faith. We all have to come to the realization that this is impossible to do. Walk blameless? I can't do that. God will stack the cards against anything a human being could muster up to show that it is not attainable by human effort. We saw what happened last chapter when humans try to self effort themselves into the blessing. That doesn't go well at all. That blew up into a whole crazy mess. We lean into our only means of attaining impossibilities. What about you? Have you come to anything impossible in your life as a believer? Has God called you to pray for that guy who curses God? Has God called you to love your neighbors? Has God called you to speak the truth in love? Has God called you to any of the thousands of commands in the Bible that seem insurmountably difficult to obey? Be encouraged. God deals in the impossible. He sets the stakes that way on purpose. So what in your life seems impossible right now? What can you be praying for specifically that only God can do? Where can you rest in God's finished work on your behalf? Faith means God calling us to do the impossible, which is great because he lives there. That's fantastic. But the truth of the matter is that's a hard place for us to even imagine. The truth is, we doubt. Take a look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. This is just a picture of doubt. Abraham laughs at God's call for him to walk blameless notice he doesn't laugh after what God says that God is going to do he only laughs when it comes to to his own part about it he's effectively thinking alright God I I know that you only deal with those who are perfect and blameless and I know that a mere mortal can't stand before you um, and I know that you must make a covenant with a perfect and blameless person that's just not me like I can't do that and it's laughable that you've even asked me to be a part of this so then he goes to God and says "All right." I guess we're going with Ishmael because um, that miracle ain't coming. So let's do this. Let's, let's go with Ishmael. All right. But this is important for us to see because yet again, the father of our faith is doubting. This means that faith entails some doubt. Sometimes we doubt our salvation because of how sinful we are and we read things like walk blameless before me and we either laugh at God or we get angry at God or our own selves for the lack of that. When we come to God with our basket full of doubts and worries and anxieties, we're actually taking a step away from doubt. Well, this only happens in the context of God working in a human, of us being in the presence of God Almighty. There's no way that you can make yourself not doubt. It has to be a God-empowered seeking after God. So where in life do you tend to doubt? Where do you doubt your walk before God? Where in life do you doubt that there even is such a God or that heaven is a real place? What's happening up here that you can take to your father? Doubting is normal when it comes to faith. It's it's part of having faith. And just like seeing God do the impossible, we're actually in a place where if we do doubt, then we get to see God graciously reassure us. And remind us of why we shouldn't doubt. But if we never doubt, or if we think that you know, we have it all together, there's no reason for God to show up. If we doubt God, if we take our doubts to God, God will reassure us. Take a look at verse 19. <clears throat> Abram has just said, let Ishmael live. Like, it has to be Ishmael, I guess. God says, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. (sighs) Ah, 25 years after the first call, he finally gets a timeline. Like, good for you, man. Um, He has to wait a long time still, but at least he has the finish line in view. Like, can you imagine having to wait 25, 26 years? Golly. Um, But what what is all of this? Like, what what did God just say? Um, This is just God's grace and mercy to Abram's doubts. God does not look at Abram when he doubts and says, oh, you big dummy, what's wrong with you? God, I can't believe I made my covenant with you. Come on, bro, pick yourself up by your bootstraps or whatever. Cleanse yourself of the stain of your sin. Like that works. Um, No, Abraham doubts and God responds with grace. He reminds him of just how miraculously it is that he will make this promise come to be. No, son. It is not with Ishmael that I'm going to work through. He came about from human effort. You guys tried to make it happen. It's not going to happen that way. Isaac will come by miraculous means, and that is how I work. God responds to our doubting with grace. This is how faith in God works. Not that we never doubt, not that we should never doubt or be smited, but that we do doubt, and God responds with grace. So just a little bit further after Jesus had just gotten done teaching, uh, He actually was killed, and he's resurrected from death, and he spends a few weeks walking and, and talking with his friends, and one of his friends named Thomas, he wasn't really sure. He wasn't, you know, he's like, all right, you know, Jesus, I, uh, I know that you were dead. I saw you die. Like, I was there for that, and then now you're walking around? <clears throat> um, so he kind of tiptoes around this man who's dead but not dead anymore. Um, like, he doubts his own eyeballs, what he's seeing. Um... But in John 20, Thomas saw Jesus, touched his hands, touched the holes in his hands and the hole in his side, and then he believed. Like for all of us, we're like, dude, God was standing in the flesh right in front of you. You had to touch the guy to believe. Like we don't get to see him. But that's not how Jesus responds. He responds with grace. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Just a gentle rebuke. It's not a, dude, what's wrong with you? You don't believe? God's not sitting up in heaven like Zeus waiting to throw down a lightning bolt at us when we doubt. Forever, until we go home or until Jesus returns, God will respond with grace to those of us who doubt. Why? Why is it that God will respond with grace to us instead of smiting us? Because in Jesus, there's nothing but grace left. In Jesus, there's nothing left but grace for you and I. If we are believers in Jesus, God's wrath has been poured out fully and completely on Jesus on our behalf. Because of Jesus, we can be reassured by God in his grace and mercy that Jesus deserved and that we receive so freely. If we are in Jesus when we read God's word that is full of commands to us. We can look at them and say, I don't know about all this. And God will respond in love and grace because that has been credited to us in Jesus. How do we get to this point? How do we get to this part of the story? In short, we have faith. We turn from our sinful passions and faith that God is better than whatever, we are, whatever it is we're trying to uh, find in our sin, whatever we're trying to find, and we turn to God in faith. We actually respond to God's call by walking it out. So we respond. <clears throat> Take a look at verse 23. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with the money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is an act of worship. This is an act of faithful obedience to the call of God, that impossible call. Faith is God calling us to something higher and harder and more difficult than we could ever attain on our own so that we will lean into him for strength and empowerment and ability. And by the grace of God, we worship in response. We walk blameless before God. We work hard at obeying the commands of God. But just remember Genesis 15. Abraham has already been made righteous. His righteousness and perfection before God is not circumstantially based on how well he does this walk. That is of utmost importance. He was already made righteous in Genesis 15. That's why Abraham was able to even be in the presence of God and not die. He was already perfect. And then... God called him to work. This has to be the, like the calculated response that we have to God's call. We read something difficult in the Bible that God has called us to do, like walk blameless, and we take our doubts to God about our ability to do it, and then we remember God's assurance of our salvation on our behalf. It was not up to us to make us righteous, it was up to God. Then we can work. It has to be in that order. If we work for our righteousness, we will never attain it. We work from our righteousness and our perfection. Faith without works is dead, yes, but works to gain faith is even more dead. We must work from our standing and status in God, not for it. That's why God gave us Genesis 17 in the order that he did. Verses 1 through 8 come before verses 9 through 15. Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. God saved him way before he called Abram to do anything. So what about for us? How do we respond to God's call? We work. We do exactly what it is that God has called us to do. We respond to God's commands by doing them by the effort that God has gifted us not by our self-effort to make something out of it that will never come. We obey God because God has saved us, not to make him save us. We love, we encourage, we build up, we walk blameless, we're circumcised in our hearts. In light of all that God has done, we respond in faithful obedience. But only in that order. Knowing full well, when it comes to those moments where, you know what, we, we blew it, we did not do that, we come back to point three. God reassures us. In pretty much every part of the Bible, you will find God reassuring you that it's not up to you and I. So when we sin, we come back to this point three. God reassures us of his salvation on our behalf and then we turn back to God. And say, you know what? I did not do that right, but God, I'm, I'm coming back. But the question still remains, how? How? How is any of this possible? Like how how am I even going to hear from God in the first place? Like Abram, how do I know that, I, that God's talking to me? How can I even get to this point? I read my Bible, but how can I really understand and know it and grow in my faith? How can I be a part of something exceptional like this? The answer is only Jesus. This is humanly impossible. This is a lot of information to handle, and maybe we feel like we cannot do it. Maybe we're doubting right now, and we think, you know what, man? This really is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. How do we know this? Because centuries after this moment with Abraham, God will perform the most mind-blowing miracle in history when he would take on the sins of all humankind in order to die the death that we deserved so that we could live a life that is blameless and spotless, covered in Jesus. And that man said, but with God all things are possible. In fact, the only way we walk blameless before God is if Jesus walked blameless before God on our behalf. For us, that's our only hope. In Jesus, our names are changed from whatever they are now to righteous and blameless and perfect. In Jesus, our eternal status is secured by miraculous means, not by any self-effort. In Jesus, all of the perfect work it took to live a life blameless and faultless and perfect before God has been finished. and So now we can stop working for our salvation and blessing and work from it. The reward that comes from such a life that, that God talks about in verse one is all ours in Jesus Christ. If we believe, if we turn from our sin day by day over and over and over again because it will always be there until till we go home or Christ comes back and we turn to our Savior's loving arms that are open wide. So be encouraged today. By the grace of Jesus and the Holy Spirit working in us, we can walk blameless before God under the blanket of Jesus' righteousness for us. And we can stand in the presence of God, which we will do forever. This covenant is an everlasting one, after all, with everlasting rewards. It does not stop. There is no end. So just imagine... Today you stand before God in the presence of the God of the universe before you're about to sit in the judgment seat, that does not have to be a scary thought. If we believe, when we read something like that, when we read something impossibly difficult in the Bible, it does not have to scare us. We can, by God's grace, respond in faith. So that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate and honor and give praise to God by taking communion together. And so if you're a part of this family, if you are effectively adopted by God into Abraham's lineage in your forsaking sin and believing in Jesus, then you're welcome to the table. If, however, you have not forsaken your sin and turned from it to believe in Jesus, then I ask that you remain in your seat on the basis of 1 Corinthians but but if this is you and you're here today, then it's not too late. We are all 40 minutes closer about to the end of our lives than, than when we were when we first walked in, but it's not too late. Don't leave today without knowing for sure that you will be ushered into heaven under the name and blood of Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Believe in Jesus as your only way today. If that sounds impossible, you're in the right place. If you're here, though, and and you're just beaten up by your sin, lean into the faith that God has given you. Allow God to reassure you with the gospel to stand up and keep fighting by grace the fight that God has already won for us in Jesus. For all of us here, uh, this is our prayer. Father, thank you for the grace of making this life impossible to live without you. Thank you for allowing me to doubt. And thank you for your reassurance to me in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help me to press on by your grace in this grace today.